Sorry. We sell seashells, so I'm busy. Yeah, sure. Right. Now do that after a glass of wine. New York. Unique New York. Yeah. Is that a thing? Yeah, yeah. unique New York. Uh, welcome to uh, Marginally Significant. Uh, my name is Andrew Smith. I'm a professor at uh, Appalachian State University. I'm here with my colleagues. Uh, Andrew Monroe. Twyla Wingrove. And Chris Holden. Um, on today's episode, we're going to be talking about why perhaps we should be um, publishing fewer papers than we do. And um, Monroe is going to try to convince us that uh, we should never use MTurk again. MTurk should die. There we go. That is what we're going to talk about later. Um, but uh, first, we'll get into why maybe we should publish fewer papers. And Andrew, I think you kind of had this idea to start. So we'll start with you. Why do you think we should publish less research from the guy who's published like eight papers in the last like you know month and a half? Well, that's actually the core reason that I've I've published a bunch of papers recently. So if other people publish fewer papers, then my my profile can can therefore rise by contrast. Uh, by contrast, like I, I will depend on the contrast effect uh, for for my career. Uh, but but actually no, I want to I want to take issue with the idea of publishing fewer papers. I don't actually agree that we should necessarily publish fewer papers. I think we should publish different papers, and that will likely result in publishing fewer papers. But that would be a side effect, not the ultimate goal. And and so my my thinking on this really comes from uh, I was at SPSP years and years and years ago when I when I was a postdoc. Um, and, and we were out, uh, we were out drinking and one uh, of the grad students that we were, we were out with posed this question to, to the group and the question was a really simple question, but it was a question that actually shook me quite a bit because I couldn't come up with an easy answer to it. And, and the question was just, what was the last paper that you read that absolutely amazed you, that you thought was an impactful, meaningful, well done? Just what was the last paper that you read that you actually thought was amazing? And as I thought about that, I'm like, well, you know, that paper's okay. And that, that paper's all right. And it took me a really long time to come up with a paper that I thought was amazing. And so I don't necessarily believe that we should publish fewer papers, but I think that that sort of momentary insight that we publish a ton of papers in the field, but how many of those papers are meaningful papers? And, and so what I, I think I would argue for, and you all can, can disagree with me, is that we need to be aiming to publish papers that are doing a better job of reflecting real phenomena that are methodologically rigorous, that are diverse with regard to the participant pools that, that we, we are using. And so I think we just, we need to publish better uh, papers. Um, if I have to read another paper that has like some version of a trolley problem in it, I'm going to self-harm. Um, because like all of us in moral psychology know that the trolley problem doesn't really tell us much of anything. And yet right, right. there are literally hundreds of papers about the trolley problem. And so I'm left with this idea of like, what are we doing? We have hundreds of papers on a thing that we know doesn't really tell us much of anything about human psychology. That seems like a colossal waste of of money, of time, of student resources. Uh, so I think we need to do a better job publishing more meaningful papers. So I'll, I'll argue something that I don't believe. Um, so you were saying that it, just that last little part of uh, it might be just a waste of time and effort and whatnot. Um, so that's like, oh, hey, you know, doing this research, that's a bad idea or working on the trolley problem, whatever. Um, but maybe from like a training standpoint, we could be saying, hey, this is still a good experience for an undergrad 
grad student, a graduate student, um, to get this um, you know experience of writing a study, analyzing the data, collecting data, and so on. Um, and so even though it's a simple little study that we're going to use a paradigm that a million people have used that doesn't predict anything, it's easy, but they'll still get that experience that maybe they wouldn't normally have. Again, I'm not entirely sure if you're going to agree with that argument, but I don't <laughs> Do know. Do you have to publish it? Well, okay. Right. Yeah, that's yeah. true. I guess in that sense, yeah, you could have them run the crappy study and just never publish the crappy right. study. But there's, I mean, you could say that there's value in, you know, going through the publication process, though. Um, but it, is it outweighed by the amount of time you're wasting? Like, you're wasting resources, reviewer resources, for example, um, if you're submitting papers that are not, that you already only partially think are yeah, even right. all that impactful. Yeah. No, I guess that's a good point. Yeah. So the in that sense, the cons would outweigh those. Yeah. And I was going to say, so imagine, imagine this. Uh, so imagine you say, well, I want my students to get an experience. Uh, and I want to teach them how to do like a really simple two by two uh, design because lots of experiments in psychology are two by two. So what I'm going to do is we're going to either ego deplete people or not. And then we're either going to give people a little bit of glucose or not. And so in that case, like, would you say like, oh, well, that, that's totally worthwhile that we, I, I've taught my student how to do this thing that is probably bunk. Right. But you could, I mean, in that sense, you could be contributing to the literature and saying, hey, we have another failed replication sure. because ego depletion is probably, well, I don't know. That, that particular finding, like the yeah, glucose, the yeah, glucose finding is, is likely not true. Yeah, I don't yeah. want to yeah. bash everything. Um, but, like there, yeah. there may be a phenomenon that we call ego depletion, but yeah. the glucose side of it is yeah. probably Disclaimer, disclaimer, blah, 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 blah. But yes, that study wouldn't probably show much. Mm -hmm. But then in that case, your approach would probably be very different. Like if you're coming at this at, as a like, pre-registered replication, then it wouldn't be just about training, but you'd actually have like a particular research agenda attached to that. So, yeah. Um, yeah. I was going to say, um, I don't know if this gets directly to what we should do for like these training sorts of studies, but um, if I was hearing everything that you said initially, it sounds like the, the argument is that we should move towards these more, I guess, systematic papers in some ways. And I'm not saying like we should just adhere to the old JPSP model. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, have like six studies that are incremental in design. Um, but I think something that would really allow for, I guess, a wrestling of ideas and really going through this like pitting these maybe different aspects of a theory against each other and making sure that the methods follow with that you know as opposed to just saying oh here's these two variables you know can we find a way to test these things or see what happens to these students mm -hmm. and I think if that's the goal and that's you know, maybe the paper that you're kind of arguing for, that would trickle down into what you do with undergrads, potentially graduate students who, I mean, may not go on to graduate school, but the purpose is to train them in the studies and the ways in which we do those studies that we want. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think the only thing where I'd, I'd push a little bit further is, um, and I don't, I don't think I was explicit when I was making my first point, is I think when I say, like, we should publish better papers, that also means publishing more behavioral papers, like right. more papers that actually involve some behavioral data and that that's like one of my beefs with the trolley problem that like it's hypothetical i mean that's a beef i think with like moral psychology in general that we offer people vignettes yeah. and then we ask them to judge them and those judgments may or may not map onto like real world behaviors should we look back through your last like i don't know five oh, papers yeah. and see how many have behavioral <laughs> outcomes one one out, uh, of... out of uh oh no two two uh <laughs> two two out of five in the last Three years, I okay. think. Yeah. Right. yeah, two out of five. It is really hard though to disentangle this conversation from what from our history and our training and the mm -hmm. publication right. process, right? And so I 
in principle agree that we should be doing better research and focusing our resources on fewer studies that are high quality. But then when I think about my students, I have to make compromises in the quality of their methodology. So that graduate too, right? Like there might be three variables right. that are relevant, but let's only study two. We can't manipulate all of reasonably attain an adequate sample, whatever it is. Um, but then, so we make those compromises, but then after the fact, I know that it can get published somewhere. Mm-hmm. So am I to, to not recommend publishing it when I know that right. it can be a pub, right? Even though I know I made compromises, it's I know it may not be the highest quality thing that I've done and mm-hmm. that I wasn't adhering to that principle, but I know that there is an outlet out there. Yeah, so at least the student would have that line on their right. CV that then yeah. they can... I mean, I think part of your argument is hard to disagree with. I mean, part of your argument is like, hey, let's do better research. And obviously, like, we're not going to disagree with that. <laughs> but the, the argument of like only publishing like meaningful research or, or whatever, however you want to describe that. I mean, one, how do you define that? Who's right. Because obviously anything I do is amazing. And, That's right. You know, there you go. Um, but I mean, you know, realistically, my stuff is not. And there might be a place for incremental research, though. Mm-hmm. Well done, you know, pre-registered, yeah. you know, whatever. But I don't think that would fit under that criteria of like, wow, somebody's going to read this paper and they're going to think that's the most amazing reason. No, there's a slight increase and improved upon some of the methodology yeah. and so on. I mean, I'm not arguing that like every paper has to be like, knock your socks off amazing. Um, I, I don't think that's a that's a possible standard to, to obtain. I don't even think that's a desirable standard to obtain. Right. Uh, I, I think that that invites a whole new set of problems. Yeah. But I, but I think that like right now we operate in a world where it is the minimal publishable unit. Like that is the world in which we operate. Find do like whatever the minimum that you that you need to do to like put together a panel of, of studies uh, and then like send those out into the world. Now if they're great, great. That means you can aim higher. If they're like meh, then fine. But like publish them. I I think like that mantra of the minimal publishable unit is deeply misguided. I think that causes us to publish lots of things that don't actually like in, like the it's not that they're that I have a problem with, with incrementalism I, I fully support incrementalism it's just that I don't actually know that they add much to the knowledge base full stop yeah I, yeah I mean again I mean like by definition if it's an incremental study it's not going to add a whole lot to the knowledge base so I mean I guess I agree with that's you right there <laughs> I don't know but yeah that's hard to again yes yeah, but yeah but yeah so like how do you define what kind of meets your criteria for something more mm-hmm. than what it is I mean well and I mean I guess I would say another thing too I'm not entirely sure that people's Start by saying, you know, I'm going to run a study that just meets a minimum threshold so I can get it published. I think a lot of times people think their study is better than it is. They, you know, try to get it published in a, you know, either top or medium tier journal. It doesn't work out and they kind of work their way down. I don't know that a lot of people, though, do that where they just think like, hey, I'm just going to run a bunch of, you know, crappy, you know, studies and just try to get it published. Maybe they do. I don't know. I think this is where the pre-registration movement helps, right? So forcing yourself to take a minute before you start collecting data and register however you choose to do so, your analysis 
plan, your hypotheses, mm. your theoretical framework, whatever applies in your situation, um, I think adds to the doing research slower um, goal, right? Because right. then you may think, at least in my position, I frequently think my study's amazing and I submit the IRP. <laughs> yeah. And then I get the data and realize that I made some sort of stupid error, yeah. right? right? And pre-registration forces yeah. on that. Or, oh, sorry. Right. And I think, too, it, uh, it ties your hands in some ways that are good in that a lot of a lot of times when people are cranking out those minimal publishable units it's because either like something fell through or they've harked and they've realized that they can get this or you know they're on a timeline that you know this is the only thing that's publishable with the student while they're here um, and if you've pre-registered you might be able to do that to an extent but you're still gonna have to make sure you follow what you pre-registered and, and everybody can check that it's you know it's verifiable um, so I don't know if it solves the problem identify papers that are at that minimal publishable yeah. To go beyond pre-registration, I think that's also where registered reports would really come in. Totally. Where you have people actually giving, you know, external reviewers giving you feedback on the procedure that you've identified. Because again, you think it's fantastic and then they notice some obvious things. I would so much rather get that feedback before I run the study rather than afterwards and then have to try, like you said, like try to make up some story as to why this is useful. Right. when there was some major flaw to it. So yeah, I think the registered reports can be really useful in that yeah. way. I totally agree. I think one of the registered reports are, are fantastic in the ways that you outlined there. I think one other additional promise for registered reports is it allows you to do some theory testing that you might not be able to do. Not not because like you're incapable of it, but for sort of political publishing reasons. I don't mean like uh, American politics. <laughs> right, uh, right. But, but like so, so one thing I heard a bunch from, from uh, my PhD mentors was if you want to publish in JPSP, what you need to do is you have like the JPSP formula, number one. Eight studies. Uh, eight studies, like you demonstrate it, you have like your correlational design, you have your moderators, you have the, yeah, you, you do it incrementally, but also you need to be damn sure that you're not stepping on anyone's theoretical toes. Um, so you you can sort of you can nibble and say like maybe this isn't quite right but if you have the audacity to say like we'll have two theories and we're going to test these against like I have my theory and I have an opposing theory and I'm going to test these two the probability that you will get something through is lower because you know that the editor is going to send that to one of the people of the opposing view and hopefully that person is going to be like well I don't buy it but even if I don't buy it like here like the data are the data but you could have plenty of people that you get as reviewers who just like malign your paper. Yeah. Um, yeah. And one super awesome thing with the registered report is you go through and say, okay, I'm going to test these two theories. Mm-hmm. Here's how I'm going to do it. And then like people can rip up your methods and whether or not it's a fair test. Yeah. But then once it's agreed upon, yeah. like, those are the methods that offer yeah. a true test of these two theoretical perspectives. You can actually go out and test those things and then say like, well, which model is true in a way that I think is really hard to do in our top journals in the field. Like I think I think it is a difficult climb for like a JPSP article to say like here's my model here's this opposing model my model's right these other people are wrong uh, that's that's just really hard yeah no I would agree I mean and, and it would be interesting to see you know when you propose the study like let's say you have somebody who, who is um, advocating for an opposing model mm-hmm. my guess is if they saw the methodology they would look at that and be like I'm sure the data is going to turn out in my favor yeah. um, because they're going to be overly 
confident in their model. And, and it might turn out that way. And obviously that's the point is that, well, you're testing it to see which way it turns out. But mm-hmm. obviously there's a good chance that it wouldn't. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that could definitely um, help or make it easier to get into that type of journal. Does JVSB do um, register reports? I don't no. Think. They, they do replication. They do replication. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah. Uh, but no registered reports. Yeah. Just, yeah. Um, uh, Psych Science has started to do registered reports. Um, which is interesting, and they implicitly seem to assume that they would be um, more. I don't know if it's implicit or explicit, but anyway, they they um, seem to imply that they were would be more willing to um, uh, basically repli- have a replication, pre-registered um, replications of their own, the, you know, the publications from mm. like science versus uh, other places. So, what is it, the uh, Pottery Barn? Yeah, or something or other yeah. that's like you know they advocated for it so then they have to figure out how to fix right. it basically yeah. right. that's, um, that's going to be tough for psych science they're going to have a lot of stuff to that's what out. I thought yeah. I was like, there's going to be a crap ton of stuff that's like yeah they, we're not going to see these uh, was it priming effects across like seven years or whatever so now it was like seven months or something but yeah. whatever it was some of the <laughs> either way yeah either way it was like silly so anyway yeah. hashtag psych science shit yeah <laughs> so, uh, so I'm wondering like I guess I'm getting down to brass tacks a little bit. Like, if we were trying to put together a paper in this direction, would it be necessary to pre-register? Like, what's the what's the workflow look like? And, you know, would it be multiple studies? Could it be a single study, like a student's thesis? Like, I'm just wondering, like, where that all falls out. And, you know, I, I think some folks think of the thesis or dissertation as kind of like what you're suggesting, where it's, it's more of this comprehensive, I guess, or a systematic study of something. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm wondering if we can help that a little bit. Well, I mean, it sounds like what you were advocating would be it's pre-registered, it's, you know, theoretically interesting, mm-hmm. not just like, hey, let's run the study to see what happens. I mean, it could be about a phenomenon. So, so for example, you could say, like, we have, we have no real theories on what the predictors are for when and where people express moral judgments. So, like, we just don't have theories about that really um and so you could say like so we're gonna do a a study um and we're gonna look at what the predictors of of those expressions are now i do think like you want to pre-register in that case and so like here's what we're gonna here are the data we're gonna collect here's how we're going to do it and here's kind of the the hypotheses that we have a priori and but i think you're also like really honest that those are our a priori hypotheses but those may not be true and we are conducting this in exploratory way and I, th- I think like that would still be a really meaningful paper, like regardless of whether or not your predictions turn out to be true or something totally different turns out to be true. I think as long as you are, I think the important thing is to be transparent about what you thought would happen and what actually did happen in the data. Right. But that would be a case where I think like a single study could be impactful, meaningful. Like that would be a study that I, I feel like I would read and not just because it's the type of work that I do. But you could also have a more sort of incremental approach. Like you could have the JPSP model uh, and that could be one that is also a really impactful meaningful one but I think yeah Chris your question about what does the workflow look like for that I think is is the is a really good question to ask. I'm not sure that I have a full answer to that though. It starts yeah. with pre-registration. But yeah, I, uh, but I, I still I'm going back to the whole incremental study. So what yeah. if we had just like a single study that was um, saying like, hey, we have this phenomenon. Other people have found it in X context. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not entirely sure it generalizes to all other contexts. We're gonna have basically a conceptual replication in a new context. Mm-hmm. That seems to me like what I would describe as like an incremental 
final study. It's just like it just you know changes a few little things, tweaks a few little things. Does that warrant publication in this new criteria of hey, we need to publish good research? It, assuming it was pre-registered and you know well-powered and all this sort of stuff. Is right. That, is right. that good enough? Does that meet the Monroe standard? <laughs> of, you know, Only if we can make yeah, yeah. the Monroe threshold. Yeah. I, I think uh, copyright uh, Monroe 2018. Yeah. Um, no, that, that's a good question. Um, I think it could be published, but I think the question would be where? Uh, and I think that like that's knowledge that this is that this phenomenon that we found in context A also appears in context B. But I think a lot of us like imagine like you picked up that paper and you read it and you're like, all right, I know I know something new now. Right. Yeah. Uh, but but I don't know that much new. I agree. Uh, right. Yeah. No, and that's but that, I think that's my point is that I don't think that anybody's going to read that paper and be surprised. They're going to say, oh yeah, we would guess that because it it, it um in it, uh, um uh, they found it in context A and now we found it in context B. Let, let me put my argument a different way because um, I, I, I don't I'm not arguing that like those papers should go away what I'm arguing is that on balance when we think about what type of work exists in, in psychology I think that the vast majority like we could attach whatever percentage we want but the vast majority is some version of, of that okay. like we know this particular thing now we will tweak one thing and then we will show that it exists in this like slightly different context and I think that is that that is fine work to do uh, but the fact that like almost all of our work or the vast majority of our work is that rather than people like being daring about ideas rather than people like going after like some real behavior or stretching uh, and I'm not saying that like, no researchers do that um, right. but, so like, to the point the last paper that I read like absolutely knocked my socks off was this paper by uh, Molly Crockett and colleagues about um, forgiveness and like whether how we update our judgment and that mm. it was methodologically beautiful like the findings were amazing there's like some real behaviors there like that that paper stopped me in my tracks it was so amazing uh, so I'm not saying that like none of our work does this but I feel like on balance most of our work is in this incremental doesn't add that for the amount of time like two three four years worth of work and to add like that small amount to the the knowledge base I feel like we, it, we would be better off saying okay I'd rather sacrifice five of those papers and instead of publishing five of those little papers, I will publish one paper that looks at a real world behavior that actually gets at, at what people actually do. Uh, that may not, the data may not be as clean in that case, that it might be more complicated. And I think that we are just super averse to trying to tackle any sorts of complicated real questions. And I think that's a shame for our science. So, oh, good. Uh, I was going to say, um, when I first thought about this question, and I think we're getting closer and closer to this, um, one reason why a lot of people don't chase those daring ideas and do very methodologically beautiful things that are time intensive is that there are systemic pressures to yep. you know publish and you know when I when I saw this question I was thinking okay promotion to tenure requirements like what it means to be competitive on the job market if you're coming out of grad school mm -hmm. and a lot of that is having multiple publications um, so I wonder if some of it is just by dint of that and not so much of what the the science values and what the field values it's more of the incentive structure yeah well, I, I think we are what our incentive structure is right. to say like yeah. what the field values and our incentive structure are different I think is maybe being too charitable to the field um, but right. like, we incentivize what we value yeah yeah I mean almost I mean certainly we incentivize quantity over quality because quality is hard to evaluate across different areas and whatnot right. but quantity I mean if you have like you know eight Come things on. on your CV I can like oh I get to publish eight things mm -hmm. all right but I do have a question for you 
All right, so um, uh, I have a friend, let's say. Imagine there's a friend. <laughs> Somebody I Somebody know. Somebody I know. Back to like the D.A.R.E. program of yeah. the 1990s. So I got a friend, and he, he's, um, he wants to get uh, promoted. Mm-hmm. So he wants to have some good publications. Mm-hmm. But let's say he's not very smart and can't come up with good ideas. Mm-hmm. So do you tell him just like, well, just don't publish anything. Like, I know that you can only think in incremental ideas. You, you, you know, too bad that you can't come up with the next great idea. What do you tell that person? I'm going to relate this to my friend. Yeah, yeah. Speaking. Uh, no, I mean, but, but I, think, I think the false equivalency here is that incremental equals bad. I'm not saying incremental equals bad. I'm saying that the fact that the field is I'm making up a percentage that doesn't reflect anything that I actually know. Right. 80% incremental. It's way and, more than that. Okay. Well, I was trying. Okay, yeah. it's 95% yeah. incremental. Yeah. I think that is a problem. I don't think it's a problem. Like, yeah, I mean... So if my friend publishes 100% incremental, there's got to be other people who publish not 100%, though. So... So I've said that, yeah. But that's what I'm saying. So what do you recommend my friend do? Just keep publishing that? But then isn't that everybody just... Then I think I think your friend should say, like, well, can I sit down and can I come up with a better idea what if, in addition? What if my friend happens to say, no, I don't have any good ideas? Oh, that's going to be a hard <laughs> career path for your yeah. friend. <laughs> Uh, yeah. But I mean, yeah, I mean, some scientists are better, some scientists are less good. But yeah. I'll tell my friend that. Yeah, you should. So I keep going back to like kind of previous models for what was an impactful period, going back to the question that was posed at SPSP. And, you know, I don't think that we should try for those flashy headline graphic studies because that's part of the reason why we got to the replication crisis. Right. Um, but then there's also, just to take it to the extreme, end, like these very tight, super methodological, like super heady scientific papers that we could be writing. And I don't know if those are going to be the thing that is like this new form of publishing because right? I, I don't think that people would want that and except for people that are like very entrenched in that camp and know those variables so is there a middle ground and have we already hit that middle ground with some of the papers and publishing crack yeah I don't have an answer to that <laughs> yeah okay yeah uh, neither do uh, the rest of us yeah. apparently yeah. well okay I, I I feel like I want to keep like clear so I'm also <laughs> I'm also not meaning that like flashy is right. what we should be aiming for right I, I'm not saying that, you okay. said that at all yeah. Uh, but yeah, that, that that that's all I got there. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, again, going back to some of the points you're raising, I don't think any reasonable person can argue with. Of like, we want better research. We want people to at least feel like they have the freedom to um, shoot for those, you know, bigger publications, the things that are harder that might take longer, like mm-hmm. having behavioral um, DVs rather than just like hypothetical scenarios. Um, so I think there are a lot of those things that. that that are hard to argue with that I would definitely agree with you on. It's just then how do we incentivize that? So when we're looking at, you know, hey, you know, so-and-so going up for tenure, promotion to full, whatever it is, you know, well, they only had a couple of studies. I mean, they would really have to... Um, they'd have really have to argue of like, yes, I realize that it's only, you know, three papers that I've published in the last four years, but these are three really good papers. And that might be a challenge for people. Yeah, that that's a fair critique. I feel like I'm, I'm depending, my argument depends a little bit on like good research being self-evident. Uh, and I, and, and I would, I would defend a version of that, that I think we, we all know, even in, in papers that are not in our area, 
I think we can, we've reviewed papers that are not in our immediate area. We detect like, ooh, this paper is a bit shoddy, um, but it's, it's fine, um, but it's a bit shoddy versus a paper that, oh my gosh, like this is just a really methodologically tight and interesting paper. Um, so I, I feel like it, it is true that even if someone is publishing fewer papers, that we are trained to recognize excellent research and good research from sort of mediocre research. Um, so even if you're not an expert, you could make that particular argument. But I think the core of your question goes back to, to Chris's, uh, Chris's question where he's saying, so our incentive structure yeah. is, our, is the incentive structure, and the incentive structure is basically count lines on the CV. Yeah. Um, and I mean, there... I mean, yeah. there, I don't, I don't have a good answer to that, like, short of, like, I guess we burn it all down, and I don't, <laughs> yeah. I don't terribly like that answer. Yeah. I'm sitting here quietly struggling with this conversation for a couple of reasons. Because <laughs> you hate all of us. I get Mostly it. because you're all annoying me. Yes. Um, so, I just feel like the conversation, the tone of the conversation is that even if we achieved some of these goals, we would still be perpetuating academic silos, right? Mm -hmm. And so, like, we're saying publishing more meaningful research, but meaning seems to be defined in terms of still publishing in high-quality academic journals with right. rigorous methodology, not translating that. And even, like, real-world behaviors, if you're doing it and you're publishing it in JPSP, then you're not translating that to an audience that might be able to use that. I don't even know what translating that would mean entirely. And so part of my reaction is, um, I don't know what problem we're solving um, if um, if that's our only goal. Well, the, the main yeah. problem that we're solving is that Andrew looks better He looks better relative to everybody else because by contrast, he's publishing more. Yes. And so that's the problem we're solving. Well, and, and then on the, the flip end, like your hypothetical friend, <laughs> um, like who's not to say that maybe like there's a place for him to continue publishing. It could be a her. Her. <laughs> no, it's, it's a him. He's dumb. It's yeah, a it's <laughs> <laughs> to publish right. incremental research. Um, in, I don't know, mid-tier journals. Yeah. And the reality is that not all of us really, like, strive for fame and glory. <laughs> and, and maybe his career goals are about training students in sound research methodology. Right. Um, so then the incentive structure is that we recognize that publication isn't the only way to prove success. Right. Um, so maybe we change the publication model so that those mediocre studies aren't getting as published as often. But he still might be able to demonstrate straight success by showing that his students are being well trained, for example. The end. So I, I'm going to propose a radical idea that I don't know that I believe in either. Um, but I'm, I'm curious. I'm curious what the group makes of this. So imagine a world in in which you have people who say um, whatever work I, I so I'm going to do work. It might be incremental, um, and whenever that work is done, I'm going to post it to Psych Archive and like before going through the peer review process. So it, it is available. It exists um, as part of the the record. Now, if I think you know this is and 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 assume that we have like a way of incentivizing and sort of rewarding that type of behavior because that could be training students it could be um, teaching both undergraduate and graduate and, and master students research methodologies but you get rewarded because that that work gets to exist as part of the sort of literature in a broad form uh, via psych archive or, or some other similar type of uh, open source uh, dissemination but then if you say you know this is not just uh, th this work, I think, 
I can turn this into, or, or this is, is work that really is important uh, because it is methodologically tight or because it is theoretically relevant or because it taps into and tells us about some, uh, some real world behavior. And it could be any one of those three or some combination or maybe some other things that I haven't mentioned. In that case, then that gets submitted for publication and then it gets evaluated and all these types of things and then maybe it gets, it gets published in that case. And so we have in this hypothetical world a sort of two-tiered system that all work gets reported and added to to our, our knowledge base. But only work that we think of as being really important, however we decide to define importance, and I'm, I'm intentionally leaving that open, is work that gets published uh, in, you know, X journal or, or journals. Um, what do you think about that? Does that does that address your worry, Twyla? Does that... I think so. I guess... I mean, to some extent. I can also see problems with it. But um, I think that there are those who are doing science to further our knowledge and understanding of the world. And there are those who are doing science because they need to get a publication. And I don't know which side I'm on. <laughs> but but um, this conversation can't, like, we just can't ignore that there are people who are motivated for reasons other than um, scientific. Yeah, yeah, scientific. And then to go back to what we've been talking about, it's not necessarily irrational for them to be motivated by things other than advancing our understanding. It right. might be rational for them to try to get a whole bunch of. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's yeah. fully rational, yeah. like grants, prestige, yeah. all, all of that. Um, and so but, your suggestion does create an avenue, right? So that there's sort of like tier one is hmm. promoting scientific, I don't know, right. forwardness, and tier two is incremental work that passes the methodological test, like it's mm-hmm. sound. Yeah. And right. But is, I mean, isn't that still going to be a situation where then people realize, well, tier one. One's valued more than tier two, yeah. so therefore, but I think that's my, okay. I know, but but okay. but then my motivation would be. Why am I going to stop at tier two? I should try to publish everything to go to tier one, so I have more lines of my CV but, that fit in tier one. But that's what the peer review process is for. And if if everyone can get a publication, so if everything can go in tier two, then I think we take out some of the politicization of of okay. of tier one, where we say, okay, now like our job as reviewers really is to like vet these particular ideas and we might not be so so worried about protecting theoretical turf in in that case because oh no you totally disagree i disagree don't you think that would that would motivate people more because they would say like they would say hey now we need to make sure that the only things that get to the tier one are like the best whatever well yours goes against my theory that clearly is not good because now we're not evaluating stuff on the methodological rigor which is essentially what recent um, registered reports does which is earlier we were saying hey great registered reports are awesome now it's based on the findings based on the theoretical implications based on whatever i don't care what how good it, of a study it was it's what is it fine i feel like that creates a an even more perverse incentive to reject anything that goes against what i think right that was my gut reaction to it was okay we've okay. set up these new this new tiered system yeah. and then my next thought was well who are the arbiters so to speak who are the people that are making the mm-hmm. decision to elevate it from tier one to tier two 
Um, but if we're using a system like Psych Archive or anything that allows for like an open record of that sort of thing, and everything gets funneled through that first, then I think other people can check those reviewers um, that say, yes, we should publish this. Yes, we should move it to tier two. I still think we could get things like playing favorites within journals on you know editorial boards and stuff like that, um, which unfortunately doesn't seem to happen. But I think if there was enough of a, a record of these decisions that you could justify that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so what you're saying, so it's like because it's been made public at tier two, maybe that could constrain some of the bias that might occur at tier one. Yes. Yeah, you couldn't just elevate something to tier two without okay. explaining it or having some record of it. I don't know if that fully addresses whether or not that would just incentivize people to go for every tier two sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it, it might. I don't know, but I think it would. It would have to have some open discussion. Yeah. I mean, I wonder also along those lines that if you this is controversial, but the idea about like should reviews be made public? Mm -hmm. uh, I, we've all. I'm sure that we have all had cases where we have gotten reviews where we really wish. That like we could show that particular review yeah. off to the world because it was ridiculous. Right. Um, but I I think um, would making reviews public as part of the like tier one publication process be a potential check on just sort of rampant bias? Yeah, I mean, I like the idea of making uh, reviews public, um, and I mean, I wouldn't. I mean, I say do you that. sign? Do you sign your reviews? I go back and forth on that, and and no good reason. Like, I'm fine doing it. I don't care if people know who I'm reviewing, but I go back and forth on whether that should be. Like for me, I'm okay with that. So mm -hmm. I like I'm inconsistent with it. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. Um, I don't know why. Probably should be consistent, but um, I, I do go back and forth on whether that overall is a good thing because I do see how potentially, you know, it could be an issue of, you know, let's say junior faculty yeah. members or even grad students yeah. who are reviewing that, you know, if they, you know, submit a negative review for somebody who's mm -hmm. well-established, that that could come back to bite them. So I do go back and forth on whether or not, you know, making them um, anonymous or, or not is a good thing. Mm -hmm. But I have no problem with my reviews. I tend to be fairly thoughtful. I don't do that many reviews a year. Okay. So it's, I mean, like six to eight reviews that I do a year, um, whereas a number of other people, by your face, I'm guessing many more than that. I know people who are doing many a month. Just because there's so much work coming out in moral psychology and so much yeah. of it is... Like, there you go. And is that what, is that what your review is? But, Incremental and boring. I mean, stop. My, my, mine include... Like, I started off at, at the outset, like, making fun of trolley problems. I should I should be clear. Like, I have a paper that's under review right now that has a, a trolley problem well done. in it. So, like, we should also mock that, that work as well. Okay. Um, so, are you going to, like, you know, rescind that if it gets published? Mine, <laughs> mine has a, a self-driving car in it. It has a robot. So, oh, yeah. so yeah. it's Different yeah, so it's, it's different. Yes. Okay, yeah. I see. Is it real behavior? Is there a behavioral DV? People make, make real decisions. They make real Likert scale responses. That's <laughs> totally, and there are consequences to those decisions for them. I mean, when I read them, I, I feel approbation towards some and, and praise towards others. Yeah, I don't think that's the same. No, probably not. All right, so it doesn't meet your threshold, but you're willing to try to submit it, that. I mean, so so, so so it falls below the Monroe so if, threshold. If, if I if we apply like my my two tiered system, what I would say is this paper should be a, a second tier, like it should be part of the public knowledge base. So like I'll, I'll like I'll bite I'll bite the bullet here. Um, 
Um, I would say this should be part of our psych archive, public knowledge base that people should have access to and we should know. Uh, but should it be like a top tier publication? No, no, it shouldn't. Uh, I, I totally don't think it should. Isn't that what lower tier journals are for though? I mean, we have mm-hmm. like whether, I mean, I'm not just saying like impact factor, we can. I mean, that's a whole nother podcast by itself. But, I mean, there's certainly some journals that will be certainly willing to publish a one-study, one-off thing versus, hey, we need a little bit more methodological rigor versus we need, like, 12 studies that all show one thing. Mm -hmm. Certainly there's going to be a relationship there. So aren't you just basically changing that like we have that system right now yeah I maybe, suppose, maybe we don't i don't know i mean but even then we have all of the resources that go into reviews i, I think like twilight uh, they made this argument about how much time that would waste for the field would we have a lot more false positives though because then if we do everything in, uh, in psych archive now we're not getting the peer reviews right i think i think we're putting more faith in uh peer review catching yeah, bad methodologies than, than we should yeah. it's i mean well i guess we don't have any evidence of of the, of the positive bias and say how many cases do we think that like peer review has caught um, something whereas generally most of the findings that we or most of the cases where we found like oh this effect isn't real those are papers that made it through peer review uh, those are those are published papers otherwise we wouldn't worry about replicating them. Yeah. But um, but so all this to say um, to like bring it back to where where we started. My my general worry, and and maybe there's there's a podcast in this like sometime in the future about like what is it that we're doing as a field. That that is my broad worry. That if we are publishing papers because I need another line in my C because I want promotion in ten, then I think we are doing a disservice to our funding institution. We're doing a disservice to our students. We're doing a disservice to humanity writ large because like we're saying that we're producing knowledge that like might not actually be knowledge um so i think that we don't necessarily need to publish fewer papers that is not my ultimate goal my ultimate goal is that we would be more thoughtful about the papers that we're publishing we would ask does this tell us something about a real behavior if so what are the caveats and i think to like chris's point that goes to pre-registration and really outlining workflow um to twyla's point I, I think that like it does beg some interesting questions about how we think about the the review process the resources that, that go in there but i think i would ultimately like a science that tells us something real about human nature and human behavior. And and I worry, like I have a really deep worry that we have through our incentive structures developed a science that may not be doing that. That that to the extent that we say something real about human behavior, that is the exception rather. Yeah. I mean I would say I, I half agree with you. I want to move on to a topic where I can fully disagree with okay. you. So, yeah. I can, yeah. so I can feel more comfortable. Fair. So I think we should maybe take a break, but after the break we'll talk about why you want to burn enter to the ground to the ground Thank you for listening to the first part of today's episode. At this point, I'd like to let you know how you can get in contact with us. You can reach us on Twitter at MarginallySig. Our email address is MarginallySig at gmail.com, or you can find us on the web at MarginallySig.com. However you reach out to us, um, we'll make sure to reply as soon as we can. Uh, We'd love to hear hear from you, uh, see if you have any comments about what we've discussed, or have any uh, suggestions for maybe what we should talk about in the future. Um, After the break, We'll talk about MTurk, what it is, and why it might be bad for psychological research. Thanks. Uh, 
welcome back to uh, Marginally Significant. We're going to be talking about, well, Monroe is going to try to convince all of us to stop using mTERN to uh, run our studies and collect data. Is that kind of, well, again, as you've said, like many times, mTERN should die. mTERN should go away is, is my, the strong version of my stance. All right. Yeah. So, but before we get into that, maybe somebody else can actually just explain for like the one listener out there who doesn't know what mTERN is or why we use it. Just talk about what the hell it is and sure. why we use it. Yeah, so it's uh, technically it's called a crowdsourcing platform, but basically as a researcher what you do is you collect data online and you go through the process of posting your study to MTurk and relatively anonymous workers complete it for pay. Amazon acts as a third party, uh, so you have to fund the, the study prior to data collection. But once it's posted, people can actively find that study. You don't have to do anything other than post it to recruit people. And it's a pretty quick way to get data. Uh, I remember there have been multiple times where I post something and I have 100 people in an hour. Uh, so it's, it's really uh, appealing, I think, to a lot of people because of that. But it's basically just a way to off-source your data collection to an online platform. I still remember the first time I ran an MDRC study when I was in grad school, mm-hmm. and I was like literally... Yeah, literally back in the day. Man, yes, yeah, back in the old days. When, yeah, I was old folks. <laughs> uh, no, but I was literally watching the the like um, uh, survey completions yeah, come in. Yeah, and like you know, going from where yeah, like you're saying, like you, you know, normally you run you know 150 people, and that's going to take you know a month, month and a half, something like that, to where it would take literally an hour, and I was just sitting there watching like another person. Another person, another person, and it was just like this amazing thing that we could collect data that quickly and get an answer to our question, and I was just like so enthralled with that idea. Right. MTurk's a hell of a drug. It really is. Yeah. It, like in the beginning, not gonna lie, it really was like because I could run a study quickly and easily, I put it up there and did it, <laughs> which I think we'll get into later why that may or may not be a good thing. But you can definitely see why that would be appealing to, to researchers. And I guess the other thing, too, you mentioned we pay people. We don't pay them very much. Right. And, you know, you were talking about the first parts, like the, first, the early days, Wild Wild West of Enterk. Um, <laughs> uh, I had a very similar situation where, like, there was a senior graduate student who did their thesis and posted it on Enterk, and I was there when they launched it, and it was me, our thesis advisor, and the student watching it take up. Um, and at that point in time, we were paying like a cent per minute, mm-hmm. right? Which is crazy to begin with because that's so much below a living wage. Um, but it seemed to be fair at that point in time. Um, and it's climbed up and there are a lot of ways in which the people on MTurk have kind of union unified or made unions, informal unions. Unionized? Yeah, unionized. Um, and they've kind of rallied for higher pay, but I think a going rate is still like 10 cents per minute. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's a much more cost-effective alternative than bringing people into the lab. Um, so I think that pushes a lot of people towards it. Um, but I, I also think there's been people that have kind of always been skeptical of MTurk, yeah. despite it growing in popularity and despite so many people using it. Um, in fact, you know, my thesis project was built to potentially point out some of those flaws. Uh, we didn't see it ultimately, but that was kind of the 
the reasoning going into it mm. um, because we didn't we didn't know who these people were we didn't know where these data were coming from uh, and we thought that maybe we were getting skewed responses yeah. um, now of course there's the bot debate and stuff like that yeah um, but you know because it is cheap because it's fast because it's appealing because you can really see the progress in vivo, I think that's why we've had the imperfectification. Yeah. To borrow from that article. Yeah. Well. Let's yeah. Start. So speaking of that article, yeah. So there's the article recently called the imperfectification of social and personality psychology. Um, so um, they were looking at the essentially the number of studies that have been run online versus um, in uh, um, kind of in person, like a typical um, um, college student sample um, across, um, well, they started with basically starting in 2005 and then comparing that to 2010 and then 2015. And they were looking at articles published in, let's see, um, uh, JPSP, JESP, and PSPB. So um, three of basically the three top um, personality and social psychology um, journals and to see how this changes over time and they kind of have I, well my extensive reading of the abstract and looking at their pretty pictures um, <laughs> was that they had three main I don't know um points to the paper, three main uh, con con kind of conclusions. And so the first one is like what we've been talking about, which is not surprising, um, that the number of online studies published in those journals has been increasing over time, but it, to a huge extent. It started off about like, you know, in 2005, maybe 3% were um, online studies, all the rest were offline. And, and then in 2010, it's like 20%. And then 2015, now where it's like 50-50. So it's this huge increase in online studies. Um, the other thing that they were mentioning, obviously, is that MTurk is by far the biggest um, um, online uh, recruitment site. There are other sites. So there's what? Prolific. There are Crowdflower. Crowdflower, yeah. So there are other sites. Yeah. Um, but obviously, MTurk is going to be the, the biggest. And then the last one that they talked about, which I thought was interesting, was um, the amount of time per study, meaning the amount of time that the participants spend right. completing a particular study. A lot of the online studies, and I certainly do this as well, um, are super short. I mean, you know, five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. But of course, the online or the um, offline studies, when you bring people into the lab, they're much longer, and so that gives us um, uh, um, kind of different way of collecting data, or maybe some different things that we can look at. Um, but they're kind of pointing out that maybe if we're running these super short studies, that's not really tapping into some of the things we might really care about. But I mean, overall, the the main point is that yes, MTurk is really becoming a huge um, source of data collection for personality and social psych, maybe for others as well, but certainly in those areas. Yeah, I mean, I do think it's starting to spread. Um, I'm somebody who still uses MTurk, and I think there are times where you can, but um, you know, I have some colleagues I'm working on a project with in the health sciences that it's, it's going to be run through. Uh, MTurk. So I think it's it's still in a, at a point where it's growing, maybe despite some of these statistics that say, hey, this isn't such a good idea. Um, and the one thing I always go back to, and I don't know if I'm, I'm going too far with this, but we're in some ways just trading one 
flawed sample before another. Right? Because before that we were relying, and we still do rely heavily on undergraduate samples. Um, MTurk is more demographically diverse. Technically, it's uh, you can of course restrict that, um, but it's still at the end of the day, I think, something we should be cautious about. Yeah, I mean, that, that was one thing that I, I, again, on my extensive reading of the abstract of this paper, um, where I, I, I mildly disagreed with what they were saying, because, it, you know, I get it that it's a problem that we're going to, to enter, but again, we're moving away from just so much of a reliance on undergrad samples that at least if we could balance that with something else, even if it's another biased sample, I'd rather have two different biased samples than only one biased sample. So that seems a little bit better. Now, before we get into the, the problems, though, I mean, we talked about some of the advantages of MTurk. One might be speed, one might be kind of representativeness, but I mean, what are some of the other advantages, perhaps, of using MTurk? Two that jumped to mind for me uh, are collecting things like pilot data. It's a good way to you know get an early estimate of what things are like and if this procedure is working. Now, of course, there's non-naive workers on MTurk, so it depends on your procedure. Um, I think if it's a simple, you know, like first-step correlational design sort of study, it's a good way to go. Uh, or if you're developing a new scale, or you want to run, you know, a factor analysis across a few different scales because you're proposing a new, you know, personality trait or something along those lines, or a new way to find a combination of existing traits. You know, you can look at those different measures and get a lot of data quickly that lend themselves to things like factor analyses or other forms of scale development. Yeah, I've seen some of the studies, and I mean, some of the ones that we've run too have been, you know, six, seven, eight hundred participants. Um, that just would not be possible right. in a college student sample. I mean, even in a full semester, I don't think I could collect that much data. Um, and so, you know, the studies where you need a huge sample size, that actually might be... I don't want to say like the only way you can collect data. Right. Obviously, you can just spread it across multiple semesters, but but practically speaking, that might be the only way you can do it. Yeah, I think another really compelling argument for MTurk um, is that it levels the playing field in some ways. Uh, so folks that are at regional universities like we are, or smaller universities may not have access to a large subject pool if they have a subject pool at all. Um, I guess participant pool would be the better way to say that, but. Uh, um, you can collect data along the same lines on MTurk with fewer resources in those sorts of universities. Um, I think that might change now with things like uh, mini labs and Psych Science Accelerator. Um, but then again, you're still relying on the resources that you have at the ground level at your university to, to do those sorts of collaborative projects. Yeah, there, um, so in the judgment decision-making world, there. Uh, you know, a lot of people are in psychology, but a lot of people are in the business school who who do decision-making research, and um, a lot of business schools don't have subject pools. So their alternatives are, you know, basically recruit community samples. So you pay people basically $10 an hour, or, and, you know, that's, you know, expensive and extremely difficult to recruit community residents, 
or you go on MTurk and pay people like, you know, 25 cents to do your 15 minute study. And then um, you can get, you know, hundreds of people in a very short amount of time. So, so the places that I've seen MTurk just explode has actually been in places that don't have subject pools. So that gets to your idea of kind of leveling the playing field where they don't, necessarily have to deal with the lack of a subject pool anymore and, and that was an advantage that maybe site departments had because we built that in mm-hmm. to what end uh, <laughs> so so yes it is it is absolutely true that you can get tons of people in the door uh, for in some case like pennies uh, but but now like quarters probably yeah uh, but but for like really really cheap but if we're if we as a science are going to be constrained to five minute studies, where God forbid you ask someone to do an open ended question, right. um, so you can't ask anyone to explain any of their their thinking, which is a core piece of a lot of psychological work. Um, so you can't ask for explanations. You know that people have things like Google Chrome plugins where like they have the big five filled out once and so like if you ask them for the big five, they like, press a button and like big five shows up for them. Or worse yet, uh, or maybe equally worse, or equally bad, um, is like they've all seen a trust game. They've all seen an ultimatum game. They've all seen a dictator game. They've all seen God knows how many trolley problems. And so, yes, it is absolutely true that you can get data from all these people. But what I would ask is, like, what do those data mean if everyone has seen, like, knows the correct answer to an ultimatum game or knows, like, the correct answer? And no one can see because we're doing a podcast format, but I'm doing giant scare quotes for for correct. Um, Correct answer to, like, a trolley problem. Well, some of the things that do have, like the the, um, the CRT cognitive reflection task of the you know the bat and the ball cost a dollar ten or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's been used a just crap ton of times mm-hmm. on MTurk, and now people have seen that many many times. Um, there is research on whether people learn, and it is shockingly sad how slow people learn from their mistakes with that. But still, they do learn eventually. Okay, and, but, but I think that's that's still damning on two levels. One, if they don't learn, that indicates that they are not at all paying attention to your stimuli materials. Like, not at all. If they're, if they're not learning over, right. like, 15 trials, or if it takes 15 trials to, like, learn the correct answer, that they're, they're not actually paying attention to your stimuli, in which case, do we trust their answers? And two, then, like, once they learn, now they're unreliable participants in that case. Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree with the second part. The first part, I mean, because in that specific task, because the whole point of the task is do people um, um, respond based on their gut reaction versus do they think about it carefully? Well, if you get people who keep responding based on their gut reaction... Our prediction would be they wouldn't learn because they're always using their gut reaction. So I, I don't know that that necessarily means that it's a bad measure if they don't learn from the measure. Yeah, I guess I'm presuming but, feedback. But yeah, because there's yeah. never feedback. There's okay. never like you got okay. wrong, you never whatever. It's just like, hey, here's okay. what it is. Okay, so I guess if you, if you don't get feedback, then yeah. I'm not as worried and, for and, the first point. And second and point still stands. Yes, I would agree with the second point. But I would say some of the, the things with the, the second point. So yeah, so let's say somebody went through the big five, you know, a, a thousand times. Um, because literally some participants have participated in a thousand studies. I mean, that, that is not uh, unheard of for, on enter. Um, 
But I don't know, like me even knowing what the big five tests, I don't know that that really changes how I respond. Maybe it does, it but, but I don't know because I'm like, I don't know. I kind of feel like I know how I am and I just respond because like, yep, I'm not super extroverted and yep, I'm fairly conscientious and I don't know. Like, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't, maybe that wouldn't change how I respond on those types of things. Sure. Like personality. But, Other things for sure. But you would still as a researcher be worried. So like maybe there's like really good test free test reliability which we see from the big five which would not worry us. But you might be worried if you say well there's one set of participants who go through the task and give startlingly similar uh, answers each time they do it. And there's another group that gives you exactly identical answers because it turns out that they have a Google Chrome plugin. They answer the questions once and they just press a button. Like, in that case, I... I would be worried about the second set of data because you're not actually responding. We know like people's personality traits change a little bit over their lifespan, right. and like in particular in response to like really uh, poignant life events, like you get a little bit of change, and then people kind of revert. But if you're just like you press click on my Google Chrome plugin, that. That would worry me. I mean, same thing for like a trolley problem. Like, there's, um, isn't it true that something like the MTurk pool is something like 10,000 people uh, of active participants? Yeah, it, it rotates, but yeah. Yeah. It's a very small. Yeah. Thing. yeah. So you have, you have 10,000 people. Yeah. And if all of them have seen a trolley problem, you're like, so we've got this uh, this trolley and it's heading yeah. towards a guy and people are like, I get it. You you throw the switch. Like they're not, they're not making a decision that reflects any type of moral decision making that we would really be interested in. If they're just saying like, yes, I've seen this 14 times, like my answer is still the same. Um, I don't care about this. Like that is not the same as like the original phenomenon that, like Green and others have argued for. Would, would their um, judgments change? Would you expect people's judgments to change over time? Like. Every time I'm just like, yeah, you flip the switch, you you, you sacrifice um, utilitarian, utilitarian decision. I mean, and you push a fat man. I don't care. You sacrifice the fat man yeah. because you want to um, save the other five people. Um, I don't know that that would change. For well, me. so okay, so in the trolley problem context, I don't think your response to the switch case. So quick um, side <laughs> yeah, to, to unpack the trolley problem. Yeah. So the the problem um, is that people are presented with two moral dilemmas. One dilemma is there's a trolley barreling down towards five people, but you can save those five if you pull a switch and redirect that trolley towards uh, a track where there's only one person. And about eighty percent of people say that's okay. Um, in the other context, this is usually called the footbridge case, the trolley is going towards five people and you can stop it by pushing a large person off of a footbridge. And about 80% of people say that is not okay. Um, where, I, where I think uh, multiple trials, I don't think that would actually change your response to like the switch case. Like, is it okay to pull the switch and direct it towards uh, the, the one man on that other set of tracks? But I do think it might change your response to the footbridge case. If you So Green and others have argued that the fundamental mechanism by which people say, like, no, it is not permissible to throw the man off the footbridge and use him as a, a, a sort of Hodorian do- doorstop. Um, <laughs> Odorian. Yeah. That's a fantastic. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, well, well sorry, spoiler alert for Game of Thrones yeah. season seven yeah. or six. I can't remember. Uh, I've never seen it, and I know the reference. Okay. So, uh, yeah, well so yeah, you are not allowed to use people as Hodors. Okay. Um, but uh, or you're not even allowed to use Hodor as a Hodor. Um, but there, the argument is that like your 
Your reluctance to say it is morally permissible to throw the man off the footbridge relies on a quick, intuitive, emotional response of just like, no, do not cause harm. If you've seen this case 14 times, then I would suggest like your affective reaction to that will be somewhat muted. And we know this. Like, the first time there was a mass shooting in the U.S., we were freaked out by that. We are now, like, 400 mass shootings in for the last, uh, I don't know, year and a half, and we just don't get freaked out about mass shootings the same way. We are we are morally and emotionally dulled to that. And I would argue the same thing happens for, for the trolley case. You're like, yeah, throw the guy off the footbridge. So is that an issue with MTurk, or is that an issue with... Um, people should just come up with better scenarios. <laughs> Both. So, yeah, well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. So, so, I mean, maybe it should just be like, well, don't reuse the same scenario over and over. Don't um, use the trolley problem because we know it's, it's just silly. Um, so maybe it's not MTurk itself. Maybe it's just we should do good research. I mean, which kind of gets back to what we talked about before, but, but I don't know if this is an issue with MTurk itself. The other thing is that this is not, this isn't a new problem. It's a larger scale now that it's gone online. But in developmental research, people have relied on subject pools, community subject pools, mm-hmm. for eons, and they've always had to deal with the problem of having professional participants who right. might be exposed to similar tests. Mm-hmm. And so I think Interc has made that a larger problem, but in scale, but it's not new to our field. And I don't know what the alternative, in some cases, I don't know what the alternative is. And so until I'm presented with a better alternative, then I'm not convinced I should just cut out MTurk, even though it does have problems. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm just throwing this out there. Um, this is something I've been thinking about throughout this whole discussion. Uh, I'm wondering if MTurk is just like one giant social desirability scale. Right. So, you know, we use that to, to determine, you know, if people are manipulating their responses in any way. Right. If you have non-naive workers that have seen these things, we would expect that they would act in a predicted way. Right. So they would flip the switch, but they might be hesitant to push the large person off the bridge. Or, uh, I don't know, their self-esteem would be elevated consistently, or they respond in cyberball the same way. So I wonder if MTurk is acting as just like a giant measure of social desirability. Uh, and then to follow up and I guess make that a little more concrete, if it is, then if we wanted to create these better measures that are getting around non-naive workers, could we build in some of the things like trolley problems or the same personality measures and screen out people that are responding in predicted ways? Mm-hmm. We could screen out professional participants by giving them the same stuff they've seen time in and time out, but seeing if they respond in the way that we predict. Yeah, I haven't seen, I mean, so there's obviously not, you know, surprisingly, there, there's a lot of research on enter versus other samples, and and in terms of things like attention, it seems like MTurkers pay just about as good of attention as college students, which is not great, <laughs> so, so the bar is set really low, but right. it, at least it's not worse. But that's an interesting question of, like, do they respond to social desirability in a different way? And I don't know, because because obviously, like, college students typically haven't done, you know, a thousand studies. So, um, so yeah, I, I don't know if there's been any research on, on that specific issue of whether they, they respond in more socially desirable ways for different, um, whatever measure it happens to be. I don't know. 
Well, in our research, we have certainly gotten mostly undesirable responses. (laughs) (laughs) And so, I don't know. And open-ended responses that are sharing information that you would think if people are trying to self-censor, they would Mm. not share. But that's just one set of studies. Yeah, what, what... Specifically. So in the sexual assault scenarios that Monroe and I have been working on, um, people are... I would think that the socially desirable response would be to be maybe um, sensitive to the female complainants' arguments Mm -hmm. in these sexual assault scenarios, but conviction rates are very high, suggesting that they're dismissive of... Or conviction rates are very low. Oh, very yeah, low, yeah, yes, yeah. yeah. Suggesting that they're sort of dismissive of the complainant's um, side of the story. Um, and then we have people, we have had people in the open-ended responses confess to sexually coercive behavior with no prompting, with no prompting. It's not a rape, it's not like every single participant is doing this, but, right. yeah. Um, but we, sure. yeah, so, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, or who share a personal experience about how they're, they had a situation that was similar to the situation that we described in the case. I mean, that's mildly frightening. Yes. But I will say, in, in a from a research standpoint, <laughs> I mean, that makes me feel a lot better that yeah. they're willing to admit those types of things in those open-ended responses, because I do worry about those that they would be self-censoring and I mean certainly there's going to be some level of self-censoring happening but apparently even in a college student right right, right. yeah Um, and I mean some of it is tied to how much you pay your participants that um, the amount that you pay your participants correlates with the amount of time that they're willing to spend on your task. Okay. To an extent, uh, though. To an extent. Yeah, yeah, yeah correlates. Not, not, not point one. Though. Yeah. Uh, but, or sorry, not, not one. I was going to say, point one. Yeah, that, that are better than point one. Uh, yeah. But, but it correlates with, with, uh, with the two. But, but actually, I think there's a larger, so, so there's, yes. there's a, there's a problem with, do we trust the data? And, and actually, do we want to talk about the bot issue uh, before we get to, like, my Uber beat? Sure. There, there are bots. Yeah, there, there, there are bots, and, and bots are bad. Bots, bots are bad. farmers. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, that's right. They're, they're predominantly farmers. They are, they are non. And and so in like the Midwest, what are these farmers doing? <laughs> they're not, not in the Midwest. Corn. <laughs> um, they they are in the subcontinent primarily. Uh, okay. They are in India. No, it's uh, not primarily. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, but that so so to like, I guess wrap that and put it with a bow is. Um, there are problems with like data quality that there are people who are masquerading as participants who are not the participants that you are are looking for. Um, though like, a lot of very inventive and smart people have come up with ways about how we um, protect against the, those types of uh, responses or responses from bots, which is a, a smaller issue. And so I'm I'm not as worried about about bots or or people masquerading as particular participants. I think there's there's a larger worry about what MTurk enables. And and this goes back to like to the very beginning. So like apparently I have a very clear axe to grind here. Yeah, let's hear um, what's your big so, problem so my, with MTurk? My 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 big beef with MTurk and the reason why I think MTurk should go away is that I think it makes it far too easy to throw half-baked ideas at the wall, see what sticks, and then write up your minimally publishable unit. 
Um, so if if it costs you 25 cents per participant, you could run 10,000 people for very little money. You could see what four studies can you write a story about. And like clever researchers will figure out a way to link things together and mash on a theory. Um, and then like, there you go, you have a paper. Um, and I think this goes back to like the why like the like some incremental work is not that great uh, because look I ran I ran twenty MTurk studies four turned out I figured out how to write a narrative around those and I put that together and I published it and there we go but but that is a I mean I'll be that's a bad science that that is bad science I agree with you but it's not MTurk's fault if you're a bad researcher but MTurk enables the behavior. If Imturk, so imagine like Imturk went away tomorrow. Imagine like it disappeared, poof. Then you cannot just say like, you know what might be an interesting idea? Whether or not eating corn chips makes people more utilitarian. And like, so like you check, like have you eaten corn chips in the last 24 hours? You have? Let's give you a trolley problem. Oh, it turns out that people, like once we run enough people, people who ate corn chips 24 hour, within the last 24 hours are more utilitarian. Like that's a shitty idea. Agreed. But Maybe it's true though. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, 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 I guess. No, I, uh, I get your idea. But MTurk allows you to test that with and and in a way that like if I actually thought that that was a real uh, a real question that was worth investing in, I would say, okay, this is gonna take up lab resources, this is gonna take time, mm-hmm. RAs, I'm going to be putting this uh, as a priority over other types of research. And so I wanna make sure that this is a question that I think is true and meaningful. Whereas for MTurk, like, why do I care if it's true and meaningful? If my goal is to just get a line on the CV, why don't I run 20 studies right. see what sticks and then, like, move on? But, I, I mean, I agree with Twyla. That I, don't, I don't know that's an issue with MTurk. That's just crappy research. So, so like, for example, what if every MTurk study that I ran, I pre-registered my hypotheses? Mm-hmm. Would within it be your corn chip hypothesis? My my yes. What was it? Yeah, it was your eating, corn, eating, eating your corn, corn chips. Yeah, you eat makes some, people more utilitarian. You eat Fritos, and that I makes you more. Put uh, that on yeah. OSF registration. Fritos sponsor us. There you go. Yes, corn chip uh, utilitarian. Yes, corn chip. Yes, that's the title of my paper. The salty uh, taste of utilitarianism. <laughs> uh, I hadn't gotten that far, but yes, that could work. And so it says. <laughs> This is derailed. But yes, if I pre-registered that, so any MTurk study I pre-register, would then you be okay with MTurk studies? I think pre-registration would go a long way to providing a backstop to this. But but here's, I guess pre-registration presumes that you were doing this prior to data collection, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Because uh, it, it could be the case you say, like, oh, I already, because pre-registration allows you to say, I already have the data, but I haven't looked at the data. Mm-hmm. So you could imagine a universe where you run 20 studies, and then uh, you yeah. say, like, okay, I'm going to pre-register this one. Like, pre-registration is still on the honor system. Yeah. Uh, so mm-hmm. I, I still don't think that it is a full 
protection. It, it's a full set of protection. You don't trust people is basically what you're saying. Trust but verify. Like that that was the original the I mean so like I'm totally stealing this from the Black Goat, but like the Black Goat talked about like how the original idea in the Royal Society was like come and present your data to us. Uh, we we will sort of believe it when we see it. And and there's very little way we don't have ways of like really verifying. Like maybe you ran 20 studies and then you're like you pre-registered in like my scare quotes that no one can see. Yeah. Uh, but I, I don't have any way of verifying that that's true. Okay, so pre-registration doesn't matter because you don't believe people that they pre-registered it. I mean, I don't think that it, it is a full... Um, it is not a full set of protections in this MTurk problem that you can absolutely still uh, do things that are scientifically dubious and have the, the veneer of scientific uh, virtue. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, you can lie on a pre-registration. Yeah. I mean, there, I guess there's technically nothing that prevents you from no. doing that. I, I just don't get it. Like, you can be scientifically dubious with community participants and undergraduate participants and interkers. Like, or if, just make up your data. Or just make up your data. Like, if you're... You know, just pull a stopple and you're you are, good to go. If you are so motivated, you will find a way to be scientific. Fraud finds a way. <laughs> Jurassic Park 4. Okay. So, I just feel like you're... you're you're like, complaining about the lowest common denominator here. But I think MTurk 1 enables the lowest common denominator. I, I think like that that's the issue. Because I'm like, okay, short of me ver- making up my data, because that, that is the easiest thing to do. Like, I just go to the train station, I flip a coin, I guess. Uh, but, but however Stoppel made up his data. I mean, you could go and just like make it up in your spare time. Uh, but the next easiest thing to do is to do a st- like a bunch of studies where it costs you nothing. It costs you virtually nothing in terms of time, nothing in terms of lab resources. Whereas if I'm making a decision about running something in the lab or community members, community members that cost me 10 or $20 a pop, in that case, I'm going to be darn sure that I have a good, theoretically grounded hypothesis for that. I am not going to blow. I mean... If I'm paying $10 a person, I get 100 people out, it costs me $1,000. That's not even a well-powered study. It's going to cost me like two, three grand to run a good study. I am not going to blow three grand on a study that I think is just like maybe shit I'm throwing at the wall. I, someone might, however, be perfectly willing to blow $100 on just saying like, let's see if it sticks. So that's a good, I mean, so when you see other people's research, it's like, hey, they ran an MTurk study, had 200 participants, they pay them all 25 cents or whatever. Do you, yeah, what do you feel about the result? I mean, I guess maybe it depends on the study, but how do you feel about the results of that? Is it like, well, but that's MTurk, I don't know, or what do you think? It really depends on the study. I mean, there there are some studies that can lend themselves perfectly well to an MTurk. I mean, Chris made the point at at the beginning of the segment about MTurk is really good for pilot data. Mm-hmm. MTurk is really great if you wanted to just do like some, some very broad exploratory novel mm-hmm. data collection. I think MTurk can serve you very, very well in that case. Um, but, and then so, I mean, I, I think you can also do like more complex research designs. I'm not saying that like no one can do any research on, on MTurk ever that, that is worthwhile, but my reaction to, to a paper that has an MTurk sample, I would, I would ask two questions. One would be, have you replicated this with another sample? Um, do, do, I, do I see that phenomenon? In, and, and you said this, like, 
more samples are better. So like, yeah. do you show this in MTurk and college students and like even better, maybe a community sample? Mm. Uh, so one, do you show this in different populations? Two, is the study methodologically sound in and of itself? Mm-hmm. Uh, and if either one of those uh, questions, if, if the answer to either one of those questions is no, then I would be uh, I would suspect the study. But but that has to do with like, have you done sort of generally good work? Yeah. So do you think that your concern would be solved if there were um, rules in place to pay more? So if participants, mm-hmm. if Turkers really did truly unionize and somehow managed to. Yeah. Rise up. Rise up. Yeah. Like, if we, by law, yeah. <laughs> had to pay, pay a living wage, then would your concern be that eradicated? I hadn't thought about that point. That would actually deal with a fair amount of my concern, because I think that the reason why MTurk is a worrisome resource for me is that it is so cheap to test ideas that researchers may not put the needed effort into like really thinking about like what are the theoretical commitments of this idea? What are the methodological uh, worries about this idea? Um, but if you say like, okay, uh, we're going to pay people $15 an hour, like we're going to pay them a living wage, um, then in that case, if I have a half an hour study and I'm going to pay people $7.50 a pop, I'm going to make sure that that research idea is a good one. Yeah, so actually like if we paid, if we paid people living wages, um, so, so this is a case like where some social justice and some good research go hand in hand. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree with that. Yeah, and I should say, like, I'm advocating for MTurk here, but there are certain studies that I do that do not lend themselves to MTurk yeah. because I require attention to, like, a six-page yeah. document. Right. And every time I've tried to do that, I have 50% manipulation check failures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, that, that is a good point, is that, like, yeah, we're not advocating. Even if we do think MTurk is good, we're not advocating for all types of study. And I wish. I wish I could get the yeah, page. I mean, yeah, it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, all right, so so assuming we agree with what you're saying in the sense of like... And that is what I assume, that you agree with me. <laughs> well, maybe, we'll see. Um, assuming that we agree, so, so you know, MTurk studies, maybe not so great, because people who have been doing them, maybe they ran out like 50 studies, and they're just like publishing the, you know, three that actually like worked doing your scare quotes as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did a little count. So I looked at your last <laughs> one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I looked at I looked at your last eight publications. Uh-huh. Okay. And um, seven of the eight yeah. had um enter samples in them. How many of those uh, papers also had college student samples in them? Uh, I don't know. I didn't look at that. I, I will agree. Yeah, a number of these, just for the listeners, a number of these were multi-study um, um, papers that had multiple samples. But would those papers have been published without the MTurk studies? Could they have been published alone with that one, uh, you know, 32 people with the not, three who wait, didn't not, fail? Not, not failed my, none of my studies have 32 people in them. Do you want to bet? Uh, one has 36, but it's within... Oh, okay, sorry. Uh, <laughs> sorry. I, 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 I apologize for my gross exaggeration of saying 32. 
I rescind that. You are correct. It was 36. It was 36, and it is a 36 trial within subjects manipulation. Did all of them um, um, get included in the date? Because that I was thinking of the one that oh, it dropped yeah. down to 36 was what it was. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So, but regardless. So 36 times 36 is actually what that data set is made up of. Is that how power analyses work? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there are 36 times 36 <laughs> observations in the data set. Gotcha, yeah. So we had like 8,000 people. That's right. Stuff. Yes. Okay. 36 factorial. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> so, so should you, um, you know, basically retract all of those studies that used MTurk? Or is it just like, well, no, clearly I do good research. Yeah. No, no, no. So no. it's okay. That, that's fair. But again, like what I said is, in the case where there's a study with MTurk, what I would ask is, do you replicate this with non MTurk samples? And in all seven of, of the eight papers that you mentioned, I replicate the effect with non MTurk samples. Uh, so, so, but that actually would be so if I only had a paper full of MTurk studies, okay. uh, then I would be a little nervous about that. that and I, I, I would totally cop to that. But this is why I say, okay, like, I might have a study or uh, uh, even like two studies with, with MTurk studies, uh, but, but one of the ones that I'm particularly proud of has um, two studies with MTurk samples, two studies with college student samples, one study with a community sample, and we show the same results across right. all of these. Uh, so I'm not saying that like, no one can ever do an MTurk study again, but I think that MTurk studies on their own are ones that I think have enabled researchers to engage in not best practices, but dubious practices. Um, and I think that if you're doing MTurk studies, you should be accompanying these by well-powered in-lab studies as well to, to demonstrate that the phenomenon replicates, to demonstrate that you can show it in another sample, to make sure that your studies are methodologically tight, um, all of those things. Yeah, no, I mean, I, again, it's hard to disagree with saying, like, yeah, we should do better research. Yes, yeah, so we should have data that replicates across different samples. I, I, I'm, just, I'm just defending my work. Well, I mean, <laughs> yeah. you, you kind of need to when seven out of the eight have entered samples and you're advocating for enter should die. Okay. Have at least one, I mean, but also going back to Chris's idea, like, uh, um, I, I'm no fool. I understand how the game is played. <laughs> yeah. um, that, that, like, you need publications, and, like, I want to run in the same race that everyone else runs in. Yeah. Um, so, I know. so yeah. Um, going to that analogy, and I think I got you off, as <laughs> um, I did last time. It's <laughs> <laughs> a theme. Um, I was thinking about, like, Inter being, like, steroids, right? And you talk about, like, Lance Armstrong and cycling, and everybody's like, oh, well... Oh, my childhood is destroyed. <laughs> he was doping, so I started doping. And, you know, there was a lot of people that went on, went on trial talking about that, and the, the whole argument was everybody else was doing it. It's the race that I want to run. It's what I want to be in. Um, so I wonder if... I, I don't know if this is a sound idea, but I wonder if we could put, like, a qualification on him Dirk mm. research in the same way that they put an asterisk by... <laughs> yeah. One asterisk, yeah. but like super doped up. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Would, would you, but would you like put a I don't know asterisk next to like the MTurk sample, but not next to college student sample? Right. Yeah, and that goes back to my other point. I think both are, are yeah. flawed. Which I, but I, I still agree. Yeah. You, you can collect data quicker on MTurk, so I, I'm not disagreeing with that. 
But again, in terms of what does that tell us about truth or, or what's happening? I don't know. I mean, if it's a one, if it's, if it's only college students right. or it's only enter, I don't know that I really prioritize one or over the other that much. I agree. Ideally, you'd have it in multiple samples. <laughs> and yeah, ideally, you'd have the, like, the study that you talked about of like, you know, Amturk and college students and community, and it all says, shows the same thing. <laughs> Hooray. So, so I agree with that, but I, I just don't know that we would prioritize college students over enter. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, a, a pox on both houses. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, that that like enter samples are, are are flawed in their sort of unique ways. Uh, college student samples are also flawed in, in their unique ways. So I, I don't want to make the claim that like ah, what we need is a return to the heyday of the college student sample. My my. My narrow critique about MTurk is that I think what it does that a college student doesn't, a college student sample doesn't do, is it uniquely enables researchers to have a shotgun approach to research. That it allows them to throw tons of things at the wall, see what sticks, and then to write up those results as we anticipated them the entire time, to, to hark. Um, and pre-registration might be a check on that, but I'm not fully convinced that it is a, a check that solves the problem. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I would agree that if it's a one-study MTurk you know, paper, yeah. so it's just a paper with just one study, and the only sample is MTurk, sure. Mm-hmm. I, I guess I would agree with that. Mm-hmm. But, I, I mean, I don't know how many of those papers... Maybe there are a lot of them. Maybe, maybe there are a lot of those out there. I don't think there are single studies, but I think you have like a, a you have papers where it's like three MTurk studies that are all together, and like even that, I feel like we should be. I so so when we think about like promotion, tenure, all these types of things, if you've done three MTurk studies, that took you three days, maybe. Whereas like if you did three community sample studies, that took you a year probably to do that. And I and I think that we should but that's actually presuming the MTurk studies are bad. Yeah, I would say no, that's no, 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 even presuming like equally equally good studies. Uh, I think that like we should differentially value those things. To say like someone got a publication with three MTurk studies and someone got a publication with community studies, I think we should value the extra work that someone put into getting a community sample. That is hard flipping work. I and, agree. Uh, so I, I agree, yeah. but I think that's a different. Argument. Yeah, no, that's okay. not yeah. saying that MTurk is bad. That's just saying hey, we should value work that takes more time or whatever. Yeah. Uh, even though it only got you one uh, publication, okay. so so I would agree with that. But I don't necessarily know that that's the same. Part. You're you're right. Like that that is a different argument. What was that? You said uh, you were right yes. about that. <laughs> Uh, that yeah, that that is a different argument yeah. for why MTurk is is non optimal. But like my my core argument about MTurk being bad is I think it, it it enables bad research practices. Now I will allow you you noted this and I think this is this is deeply true. One thing that MTurk does allow is for us to get really big samples that we might not be able to get with community samples. For us to get with um, even college student samples, and I think when we think about what is replicable? What does sufficient statistical power look like? MTurk might be a way that we can get that statistical power, but but I think that MTurk is a tool that we should be really cautious and judicious about how we use it. And I think that we have, as a science, as a field, 
been so enamored by this new bauble that we have not taken the time to really think about what the costs of using it are. Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree. I would even go further, amazingly, mm-hmm. and so, say... So you, are, you agree with... I, I <laughs> even more than agree, and I would say we should go further, and, and we should all retract any of our publications that had entered... <laughs> Um, samples in them. So um, in the past three years, now you have one instead of eight. So sorry about that. Uh, good luck <laughs> there, going out for tenure. There goes tenure right and, there. And um, have fun with that. We yeah. should all retract um, all of our um, all enter data. No, I mean, I, no, I, I, again, I, I don't think that we fully agree, but at the same time, we certainly don't fully disagree. Yeah. Like, yes, good research should use multiple samples and have you know, um, pre-registered hypotheses, so it's not the type of, like, you know, hey, let's just throw a bunch of crap up the wall and see what sticks. Well, and to, to add to that, there are some fields where an undergraduate sample is not, is becoming an unacceptable alternative. So I think in social psych, you can still do inter-sample, student sample, and that's fine. Yeah, because we do um, crappy research in social. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but in my field, where we do excellent research <laughs> all the time. Which is, what, what is your field? A legal, well, in this context, I'm talking about jury decision-making yeah. research. I also do foster care research, which cannot use undergraduate samples also. Um, but with legal decision-making, um, we will get rejected if we try to, to cert, from certain journals if we try to use um, student samples because it is the it is just not representative of who is going to be on a jury. Yeah, and I think that kind of gets what, what Chris was saying, that it, that it kind of, um, you know, makes it available for more people to exactly. do that type of research exactly. where other, in other contexts, if they don't have the funding or whatever it is, they wouldn't be able to do that. Yeah. But that's also a context where I'm not quite as worried because... I, for jury decision-making research, there isn't there isn't a specific single paradigm that gets used by the entire field, That's and true. so you don't so, have a trolley problem. <laughs> you, don't, you don't have a trolley problem. You don't you don't have a trolley problem. A trust game, an ultimatum game, yeah. uh, and so there, uh, you the the biggest worry that you probably have is attention over time. Yes. Um, but assuming that you can solve that that problem, Interc offers you a, a more diverse sample than than a college student sample does in that case. But I mean, I so think, I'm excused from your. Ooh. Yeah, I have less ire towards that. <laughs> so my research is garbage. Yours is fine. I'm feeling good about this. Chris is on the border. You know. Yeah, personality so, researcher. Go figure. Yeah, some of the stuff is okay, but some not. Plug-in problem. Yeah. yeah, and and Monroe's research is all fantastic and wonderful. So obviously, it meets the Monroe requirement. The Monroe, yeah. Monroe threshold. The, the yeah, self-fulfilling threshold. Monroe threshold. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I think that's, I mean, you know, while we didn't necessarily come to a conclusion, I do feel like that kind of wraps up the, the arguments that we were making, and clearly we're right and, and Andrew's wrong. Um, so um, thank you for um, joining us on um, Marginally Significant, and I hope you will listen to us again. Thanks. Bye. <laughs>